you have a, a pew Bible in front of you, uh, we're turning to Luke chapter 1, reading from verse 26, which is on page, somebody's going to shout it out for me, 1025, page 1025. So we're reading Luke chapter 1, verse 26. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favoured. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favour with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. How will this be? Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin. The angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come on you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her, her old age. And she who was said to be unable to conceive is in her sixth month. For no word from God will ever fail. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May your word to me be fulfilled. Then the angel left her. This is the word of the Lord. Excellent. Shall we start, as always, by praying? Father, we ask that you would illuminate your word to us so that we would learn from it. Amen. The part of Luke's Gospel that's just been read is, to say the least, familiar. It's been the subject of thousands of paintings no, probably tens of thousands of paintings, and literally millions of sermons. In fact, it's so familiar that there's a real danger that we will hear it but not listen to it. That it's so familiar that we simply won't engage with it. It simply won't engage our attention. And therefore, I'd suggest that this morning, we all need to make an especial effort to listen to what we're being told in this passage. The basic facts are simple. An angel appeared to Mary and told her that she was going to have a son who would be God's own child. And she submitted to God's will. And we can learn a lot. We should focus on what Mary was told and how she responded to it. But before we do that, I need to address a question. 
And the question is this, did it actually happen? And I pose that question because I know that a number of Christians struggle with it. They have no difficulty with Jesus' miracles, but they find the virgin birth hard to stomach. I suspect that most of you here today, like me, uh, are not in that position. But if you are, if you do struggle with the idea of the virgin birth, then I'd suggest you ask yourself a second question. Ask yourself, do you accept that Jesus was and is who he said he is? God. God incarnate. God in human form. Now, if you also struggle with that question, then I'd suggest that that's the one you need to focus on. Because ultimately, the virgin birth is a side issue. Oh, of course, it points to who Jesus is, but it's not the main issue. If, on the other hand, you accept that Jesus is who he said he is, God in human form, then in principle you should have no problem with the virgin birth. Because if you think about it, God coming as a human being is a far greater miracle than a virgin birth. In fact, if God was to come as a human being, then either he would have to appear as from nothing and from nowhere, or there would have to be some kind of unique conception and birth. And either way, what would have happened was bound to be outside all of our normal experience and thus be astonishing to us. And as we consider this, we need to remember what the angel said to Mary. For no word from God will fail. That literally says, uh, uh, for, uh, for, God's, for no word of God is impossible. Sorry, I'll say that again because I stumbled over it. For no word of God is impossible. And it's frequently translated, nothing is impossible for God. That that's not saying that God will do everything possible. It's not saying that God's acts are random. No, what it's saying is that nothing can prevent God from fulfilling his purposes. So, if God's purposes require a virgin birth, then a virgin birth there will be. And what Luke is telling us is that they did and there was So let's focus on what actually happened. Uh, There were only two people present when uh, Jesus' birth was announced, the angel and Mary. And the angel was simply a messenger. So we need to focus on Mary and the message. As I'm sure you've heard before, uh, Mary uh, was very young. She was doubtless a teenager. And she was betrothed to the local carpenter, Uh, Joseph. 
Uh, Incidentally, in the margins, by way of interest, the Greek word normally translated carpenter in our Bibles can refer to somebody who worked in stone as well as wood. And so Joseph might well have been the local builder. That, however, is totally irrelevant to what I'm talking to you about this morning. So let's return to the main subject. Unannounced, an angel appeared to Mary and told her that she was highly favoured because God was with her. And unsurprisingly, Mary was troubled. She was perplexed. Uh, She would no more than us have expected to meet an angel. Uh, Furthermore, uh, a hundred years, hundreds of years of Christian art and Rose's appearance a few moments ago, notwithstanding, we have no idea what angels look like, and neither did she. Furthermore, the message, although positive, was disturbing. It was unsettling. Fortunately, however, the angel immediately went on to explain what was meant by Mary being highly favoured. And we'll come to that message in a moment. But before we do so, let's look at Mary's reaction, because we can learn from it. Having been told that she was going to give birth to a child, Mary asked the obvious question. How can this be, since I'm a virgin? Some people find that surprising. They suggest that it would have been natural for Mary to think that the angel was talking about her having a son by Joseph. Um, but, But I think that's far too cool and analytical. I doubt that Mary was able to do such an analysis when confused in the face of the sudden appearance of the angel. And besides which, the message of the angel suggested that something quite out of the ordinary was going to happen. Don't forget, the angel had just said this child would rule forever. And so Mary asked the question that was on her mind. And there was nothing wrong in that. There's nothing wrong in us asking questions of God if they're on our mind. After all, God already knows they're there. Though that's subject to three points. First of all, we just need to be careful about idle curiosity. Do you remember that after Jesus' resurrection, he told Peter that Peter would suffer greatly on account of following Jesus? And having heard that, Peter then turned to look at the Apostle John and said, well, what about him? And he was basically told it was none of his business. We need to be careful about idle curiosity. And then second, we need to recognize that there are some things that it's not God's will to tell us. Again, after his resurrection, Jesus told his disciples that it was not for them to know the time of his return to earth. Incidentally, after the first service, someone came and took me on about that statement and they, uh, they had misunderstood. They thought I was saying we shouldn't ask difficult questions. That is absolutely not what I'm saying. But we just need to come at it with a degree of humility. It is not God's will that we should know everything. He will tell us what's good for us and not what's not good. But if you've got difficult questions, the whole point about this is ask them. 
Just one final thing, though. We need to be careful that our questions aren't a cloak for unbelief. And if you want an example of that, go back just one uh, page in the Bible and take a look at Zechariah's reaction when he was told that his wife Elizabeth uh, was going to have a, a child. Now, the point is, subject to those three qualifications, the Bible makes clear on any number of occasions, questions are good. And Mary got an answer to her question. The angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come on you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. How will it happen? God was going to act by his Spirit. And lest Mary's faith needed reinforcement, the angel went on to remind her that God had already acted in the case of Elizabeth, Zechariah's wife. Uh, albeit uh, his actions there were rather less dramatic than they were going to be in the case of Mary. We don't know uh, how long it took for the angel's words to sink in to Mary. We don't know how long it took for her to absorb them. It may be that she immediately worried about Joseph's reaction or the reaction of the people of Nazareth. Or she may have just been so dazed by what had happened to her that she didn't ask those questions at that time. We don't know. But what we do know is that she immediately submitted to God's will. I am the Lord's servant. May your word to me be fulfilled. Mary said that she was God's servant. The word literally means bond servant, handmaid. She acknowledged that she was there to do God's will and should do so. Now, of course, you may say, well, she didn't have much option, did she, really? Or, or, or perhaps that there's no use arguing with God. And both statements are true. But the Bible is littered with examples of people who forgot those things. Indeed, some pretty big names. Moses, for example. And, of course, most famously, Jonah. And I suspect our lives are littered with examples as well. No, we need to remember what Mary said. Mary is uh, exemplary in her response. She is a model for us. We all are servants of God, and we too need to submit to his will. And we need to submit, even if, as in the case of Mary, that results in our lives needing to take a totally different direction. And even if, as in the case of Mary, God's will leads us down a difficult path. And as we do that, we should remember that doing God's will is always right for us. Not just for other people, it's right for us. Because it results in us fulfilling the purpose for which we were created. Uh, Mary suffered greatly on account of doing God's will. Yet she was highly favoured. In fact, she had the greatest task, the greatest role that could be given to any woman, that of being the mother of Jesus and bringing Jesus up. 
we will doubtless have lesser roles and probably suffer less than Mary. But we're still favoured by God because we are entrusted with doing God's will, doing the work of God. We need to learn from Mary. However, Luke's account of this event uh, is not primarily about Mary. The account, of course, focuses on her coming child. The angel says a number of things to Mary about that child. She's told, first of all, that she's to call the child Jesus, Joshua in Hebrew. She's told that her son will be great and will be called the son of the Most High, and that God will place him on the throne of David where he will rule forever. And lastly, that he will be called the Son of God. Now, there are two basic points in there, albeit they overlap. First of all, Mary was being told that Jesus was the long-promised anointed saviour of God's people. The name Joshua is, was a common name uh, in Mary's time, but the fact that the angel insisted that that was to be the name of the child points to its significance. It is a combination of two Hebrew words, Yahweh, the name of God, and a word that means deliverance or salvation. So the name means something like God is salvation or God saves. And that points uh, to something else that the angel was saying. It points to what the angel was saying about Jesus being great and reigning, ruling as king forever. Basically, what the angel was saying is that Jesus would be the fulfillment of any number of Old Testament prophecies about God sending an anointed saviour, the Messiah. And that, of course, includes the passages in the Old Testament that we hear every Christmas. Probably the most famous of those is from Isaiah chapter 9. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government, gov- <clears throat> of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. And what about this? from Micah chapter 5. But you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from old, from ancient times. Therefore angel, Israel will be abandoned until the time when she who is in labor bears a son and the rest of his brothers return to join the Israelites. He will stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they will live securely, for then his greatness will reach to the ends of the earth. 
I was half not reading the words on the page, and I kept remembering the old translation, so I apologise for stumbling over, uh, over that one. But those were the prophecies the angel was alluding to. That's what the angel was saying Jesus was to be. Now, those prophecies relate primarily to the Israelites, and they don't say what the salvation will comprise precisely. But there are plenty of other prophecies in the Old Testament, including many in the book of Isaiah, uh, which refer to Jesus as uh, a light to the Gentiles, non-Jews, the saviour of Jews and non-Jews alike. Uh, And that indicate that the salvation will comprise forgiveness from God, spiritual regeneration, and ultimately material regeneration as well. Of course, Mary could have had no clue as to how all of that was to be achieved. But looking back, we can see that the angel was referring not just to Jesus' life, but to his death and resurrection and what follows that. So that's the first point that the angel was making. But, But the angel was saying something more as well. The angel referred to Jesus as to be called, known as the Son of the Most High, the Son of God. Those are certainly exalted titles, but I don't think that Mary would have understood them to mean that she was to bear God's own Son. And the reason for that is simple. In the Old Testament, the expression, the title, the Son of God, is used of a number of people. It's used of Adam. It's used of Solomon, and indeed it's used of the people of Israel generally. So Mary doubtless understood that she was being told that her son would be very close to God, but she probably understood the reference to be simply that that was a consequence of him being the Messiah. But we're not in Mary's position. We know that in the case of Jesus... The title Son of God had a far greater significance. He was the Son of God. And there are two points to note in relation to that. The first is this. In the New Testament, there are two people, not one, who are called the Son of God. One of them is Jesus Can you think who the other one is? By the way, if you can, you'll be doing better than the 915 uh, congregation. By the way, I'm not expecting you to. Okay? Hang on, I can hear the vicar whispering so that somebody gets it. Go on, tell us what it is. Sorry? I'm afraid it's not John. That was what was said in the first uh, um, uh, uh, service as well. No, it's Adam. Take a look at the end of Luke chapter 3, if you want to check that I'm uh, uh, telling you the truth. Adam is called the son of God as well. And that title points at this point not to Jesus' divinity, but to his humanity. You see, Adam was part of God's original perfect creation, but he fell and evil entered the world. Subsequently, Jesus came as the perfect human being, 
and he did not fall. The first son of God became the source of corruption and condemnation. The second son of God became the source of righteousness and salvation. And as Paul explains in his letter to the Romans, all human beings are united with one of these two sons of God. If you want to read more about that, read Romans chapter 5. Although the key verse is, in fact, in 1 Corinthians 15, where Paul says, For as in Adam, the first son of God, all die, so in Christ, the second son of God, all will be made alive. And we have a choice. We have a choice as to which son of God we will be united with. And the Bible makes it clear that if we do not choose to follow Jesus, then by default, we will be united with Adam, united with corruption and condemnation. But if we choose to follow Jesus, then we will be united with righteousness and salvation. So, first of all, perhaps paradoxically, the title Son of God points to Jesus' perfect humanity. But, of course, it also points to his divinity. The disciples spent a long time working out who it was who was living among them. It took them a long time, but they eventually got there. And... Fifty years later, one of them, John, was to write this. No one has ever seen God. It is God, the only Son, who is at the bosom of the Father, who has made him known. Mary, doubtless, didn't understand this. But to quote John again, the true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. What Mary did understand was quite sufficient to justify the angel's use of the word great uh, in relation to Jesus. But in fact, uh, Jesus was far, far greater than Mary could have thought or imagined. He is the Son of God, God incarnate. Amen.